Our text this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 11, the first 11 verses. Although being the creator and sustainer of this vast and complex universe, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not allow the multitudes at large to honor and extol his royal dignity, at least not until his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Prior to that time, you'll recall that Jesus was continuously telling people, don't say this or tell this to others. He was trying to keep, as it were, under wraps his identity to to the masses. In fact, at various, at various times in the ministry of the Lord, he did expressly, expressly prohibit this. Even his own disciples, you recall, after they had witnessed the glorious transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the mount, as they were descending, the Lord expressly told them, don't say anything about what you have seen until after my death. whereas the curtains up to this point have been drawn and closed it would seem in allowing the masses to declare his royal dignity the curtains now at this point are pulled back for the people to acknowledge him to be the messianic king concerning whom the prophets of God in ages past prophesied concerning. Thus the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem brings us to the last week of Christ's life, just five days before the Lord Jesus was crucified. Nothing revealed concerning Christ, dear ones, was without Significance. And especially is this true in regard to Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It is filled with great significance. And let us consider today from our text in Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, how that Christ demonstrated that he was the Messianic King. First, by his divine authority, In Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Second, by the honor that was bestowed upon him. In Mark chapter 11, verses 7 through 8. And thirdly, by the fulfillment of prophecy. In Mark chapter 11, verses 9 through 11. First then, Christ demonstrated he was the messianic king. That is, the king that was promised in the Old Testament, the anointed one who had come, sent by God in order to redeem his people. And this was demonstrated first by his divine authority. Follow along with me if you have your Bibles as I read from Mark 11, verses 1 through 6. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethphage, And Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him, and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without, in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye do ye, loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him. And he sat upon him. (laughs) 
Let us set the uh, stage at this point for this very amazing event that we find here in Mark chapter 11, the event concerning the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. It is likely that within the past week or two, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. The parallel account in John's Gospel, in John chapter 12, verse 9, tells us that a large crowd had formed in Jerusalem to see both Jesus and Lazarus as a result of this remarkable miracle. Those who were anticipating that Christ would declare himself to be the king of Israel would naturally be drawn to one who was able to raise the dead. How could Israel possibly lose in a conflict or a war with Rome if they had someone, as Jesus, who could create food? I mean, no enemy could besiege them within Jerusalem and starve them out of the city. How could they lose with one who was able to heal all manner of illness and disease. They could send out soldiers who would come back injured. He would simply pray for them and they would go out again. Or how could they lose if even the soldiers were slain and he was able to raise them from the dead? Here would be an invincible army. Even if it were a small army, it would be invincible with Jesus as their king. So this is going through the minds, no doubt, of many who have already perceived and seen, witnessed the miracles of Jesus Christ. He's the man they want because of all of these miraculous deeds that they have seen. <clears throat> Furthermore, there was this was no uh, ordinary season of the year when Christ entered Jerusalem. The Lord rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on Sunday, the first day of the week. The Passover fell on Thursday of that same week. So this is about, again, about four days or so before the, the Passover of the Jews. The Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, tells us that very often at this time of the year, the highlight perhaps of the, of the festivals and feasts of the Jews, that there could be up to two million people gathered within Jerusalem. You recall that the Passover celebrated the, the event in which the Lord had delivered His people Israel from Egyptian bondage. And so in the minds of the people, perhaps, this was an ideal time to bring about a coronation of a king who would lead them out of captivity to Roman bondage as well. So they were ready. They were very ready for such a king. The Lord had come, as we see in our text, to the home of Lazarus. Uh, actually, that's in John chapter 12, verse 1, the parallel passage to this. And from there, in Bethany, where Lazarus lived, he issued a command to his two disciples. Now, we're not told which two of the disciples that this command was spoken to. In preparation for his entry into Jerusalem, note the command that Christ issues to these two disciples in Mark 11, verses 2 and 3. Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? 
Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. Well, let's consider not only the words that are spoken here as to the, the nature of the command that the Lord gave to these disciples, but I would have you consider the significance of these commands as well. First, Christ, I would submit to you, is shown to be the Messianic King by virtue of these commands, by his divine omniscience, which he displays in detailing for the disciples what they would find as they went forth and obeyed him. As soon as they entered the village, they would find a young colt which they were to bring to him. And when asked what they were doing with the colt when they untied the colt, they were to respond that the Lord has need of this young donkey. This, the Lord said, would satisfy the owners. And so we see in Mark chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, that it all fell out exactly as the Lord had said that it would. It should be noted that whereas Mark in chapter 11, verse 2, and Luke in chapter 19, verse 30, mention only the cult, interestingly, Matthew in chapter 21, verse 2, mentions not only the cult, but the mother of the cult that was tied there, and both of them were brought to the Lord. Now, we've seen this happen in the past, where Matthew lists two demoniacs, whereas Mark and Luke mention one. We saw last Lord's Day that Matthew mentions two blind men, whereas Mark and Luke mention only one. We see again here that Matthew mentions two donkeys, the mother and the colt, whereas Mark and Luke focus their attention upon simply the cult. And as we've noted in the past, this is not a contradiction between the gospel writers. It's simply the fact that Mark and Luke in these various cases are emphasizing one of those particular objects or individuals or animals rather than both so as to draw attention to either in the case of the demoniac and in the case of the blind men, one that was of particular notoriety, that was particularly well known within that area. And in this particular case, they're focusing their attention upon the animal upon which Christ rode. That is, the young colt, rather than the mother. The divine omniscience of Christ here displayed confirms to all who have the spiritual eyes to see that Jesus Christ was precisely who he claimed to be, the eternal Son of God. You see, in assuming the nature of man, the Son of God did not cease to be the eternal God. This is very, very significant, very important to realize, dear ones. The Lord Jesus did not lay aside any of his divine attributes in becoming a man. He did not in any way cease to be who he was. He simply assumed to himself the nature of man. He did not cease to be eternal. He did not cease to be omnipresent. He did not cease to be omnipotent, all-powerful. He did not cease to be omniscient, to know all things when he became a man. How then do we explain the fact that Christ, while yet on earth, did not know the time of his second coming? 
if in fact Jesus Christ is omniscient and in fact as God knows all things, how do we explain Mark 13 verse 32? But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. See, this is one of the texts that will be brought by groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses against the, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would submit to you, dear ones, this is indeed a mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. For as he is God, he was from everlasting to everlasting. But as a man, he was born of the Virgin Mary. As he is God, he fills all space and even transcends all space so that all the space in the universe cannot contain him. But as man, he was contained to a human body. As he is God, he has no limitations to his power. But as man, he hungered. He thirsted. And he was weary and needed rest. And as he is God, he knew and he knows all things. But as a man, he increased in wisdom, according to Luke 2.52. And he learned obedience by the things that he suffered, according to Hebrews 5.8. Therefore, our response to groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who claimed that Jesus Christ could not have been God because he did not know the time of his second coming, is that as he is God, he knows all things, but as he was man, he grew in knowledge by degrees as it pleased the Father. Now, those who are orthodox in this matter can indeed reconcile Christ knowing all things and yet not knowing the time of his second coming because he is both God, he's the son of God, and he's man, he's the son of man. But I would submit to you those who do not embrace that truth but rather embrace the damnable heresy that Christ was only man cannot reconcile the fact that he knew all things. For no man knows all things. Only God knows all things. They may be able to reconcile the fact that he did not know the time of his second coming because he was a man, but they cannot reconcile that with the fact that he knew all things because they do not believe him to be God. Only the orthodox position that has been presented throughout the history of the church by the faithful, which is taught in the Word of God that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, can reconcile those two truths. And dear ones, as a child of God, I find it very comforting to realize that Jesus Christ, who knows everything about me, is the very one who loves me with an infinite and everlasting love. Christ does not love me because he is ignorant of the worst about me. But dear ones, he has set his love upon me knowing the very worst about me. Knowing the most despicable sins that are in my heart. And yet he has set his love upon me. There is nothing that Jesus Christ could learn about me or learn about those who trust in him 
who are His children through faith, that would turn Him away from them because He knew all things anyway about them. Nothing is hid from the Lord. Nothing at all. And yet He loves me and has demonstrated the extent of that love in suffering, the shame and anguish of the cross and in suffering the infinite wrath of a holy God in my stead. Dear ones, with such a loving knowledge of His beloved ones, we are never, we are never out of His mind. We are never out of His thoughts. We are never out of His care. The psalmist in Psalm 139, while dwelling upon the knowledge of God, becomes enraptured with this particular thought when he considers that God not only knows all things, but the fact that God's thoughts toward him, God's knowledge of him, God's design and purpose for him are such that they are precious, they are filled with love. He says in Psalm 139, Verse 17 and 18, How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. God's knowledge of us, dear ones, will not in any way prevent His love from flowing to us. And it's because of that knowledge and that love that afflictions, trials, the death of loved ones, and our own besetting sins do not catch Christ by surprise. Rather, they are known by Him and designed by Him for our growth in Jesus Christ. And dear ones, because Christ knows all and sees all, there's no need for us to play a role. There's no need for us to to act out our Christianity, to be hypocrites. God knows our hearts. We do not make uh, any uh, brownie points with God by simply going through motions. God knows our hearts. Therefore, the Lord, because He knows us, because of that truth, it encourages us to be sincere and truthful with Him to serve Him with all that is within us, to flee to Him when we do fall, for He is our sympathetic High Priest who does know the worst about us. And He will forgive and He will have mercy. However, for those who are not the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, this knowledge of Christ, this all-penetrating knowledge, the all-seeing eye of Christ, which burns like a fire penetrating to our innermost being, becomes a source of anguish that God knows all. Because they know that they will stand finally before God on that last day in judgment, and God will see all, and the God who knows all and sees all will judge them. And it will not be a judgment of mercy and grace and love, but a judgment of justice that will be meted out. Christ not only in these few verses here that we have read demonstrates His divine omniscience that He knows all and is therefore God, is the royal King. Christ also demonstrates His divine and royal authority by His divine omnipotence in working upon the will of the owners of the, of, of the donkeys who were persuaded to let the disciples take these animals. They were persuaded by the Word of Christ and by the Spirit of Christ working upon their wills. And even in the sovereignty and the power of Christ is demonstrated here when it says that this colt 
had never had a man sit upon it. Now, that's not the most tamed animal in the world is one that's never had a man set, set upon it. And yet, this particular animal is tamed by, again, the, the power of Christ. Here are men who are implored to, to allow their animals to be taken with these disciples. And they do so. And here is an animal, a beast, who doesn't have a rational mind, who can't think, and yet the Lord subdues even this beast so that it becomes a very willing beast to carry him on into Jerusalem. It reminds us very clearly of Christ's power in overcoming our own rebellious wills by His Word and His Spirit. For none of us desired to follow Christ. None of us wanted to follow Christ apart from the Lord subduing us unto Himself by His mighty power. It reminds us that the Lord, the Creator of all things, Jesus Christ, is able to take beasts, He's able to take inanimate objects, and He's able to use all of these things to glorify Himself. He's not simply limited to those who have a brain who can think as we do, as human beings do. He is able to use all of creation to glorify Himself. And in fact, He's able to take, as we see and have seen earlier in the Gospel of Mark, the winds, the waves, which would ordinarily have destroyed that ship and able to turn them around for His glory to show forth His mighty power that He has. You see, he's able to use all things to glorify himself and to edify his church, to build up his church. He will even cause the wrath of man to praise him and to glorify him. So great is the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, I encourage you, therefore, to turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for He will tame your restless heart. He will replace a heart of despair with a heart of hope. A life of disappointment with one of divine appointment. A mind of confusion with that of understanding. Unbelief He will replace with trust. Fear He will replace with courage and confidence in the living God and in the place of a conscience filled with guilt and condemnation, He will grant merciful forgiveness. Such is the Christ that we serve who is the Messianic King. And dear ones, before we move on to the second main point, you may seem, you may seem as much in the dark at times as did perhaps these two disciples who simply went to obey the command of Christ to take this donkey to, to untie it, which again perhaps to them seemed a little strange and odd just to go and tie a donkey that didn't belong to them and simply to utter the words the, the Lord has use or, or need of it. But you see, again, here is faith in action. Faith doesn't question what the Lord Jesus gives by way of His revealed will. It simply acts upon what God has said. The disciples don't at that point dispute and say, well, Lord, you know, ought we to really be doing this? What if this happens? All of these kinds of uh, scenarios. They simply according to the text, listen to what the Lord had said and go forth and perform it. 
I would simply say to you, dear ones, you may have a difficult time embracing divine truth, which cuts across your own comfort zone. But you see, this is what faith is all about. Entrusting everything to Jesus Christ, who knows all things and can do all things, and who will always, always do what is best for you, his children. That's faith. Entrusting everything to Jesus Christ. The second main point is that Christ demonstrated he was the messianic king by the honor that was bestowed upon him. Mark chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strewed them in the way. <clears throat> when the colt was brought to Christ, the disciples laid their garments, their outer garments they took off, and they laid these garments upon the young donkey as the Lord made his way into Jerusalem. And there the multitudes also took off their outer garments and they laid them in the road as the Lord traveled through the streets of Jerusalem so that he, riding upon this donkey, actually stepped on these garments. You may ask, what was that all about? What was that to signify? Well, this was a way of loudly proclaiming the honor of Christ as Messianic King. You see, the spreading of garments before Christ was a royal honor, as we see from the same actions when Jehu was proclaimed King in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. This action signified that the people laid themselves down. They weren't going to lay their actual bodies down so that the animal with Christ upon it trampled upon their bodies. But what they could do was to take out or take off of them their outer garments signifying that they were casting themselves down at the feet of Christ as king. They not only cast their garments down, but they also, the scripture says, they took branches from trees. And John 12, 13 says that these were palm branches that were taken off of trees and began to wave them. And as we shall see, they began to shout loudly concerning Christ being the messianic king. But again, the action of, of taking the palm branches and waving them We see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that there we are told about the church triumphant, the church in heaven, who stand before the Lamb, having come out of this great tribulation. And they stand before the Lamb, before the throne, and they are given palm branches, which they wave while singing to the glory of the Lord. And again, this is a display of honor which is due to a king, to a sovereign. Now, it is indeed true that that is what these particular gestures on the part of the people signified. They did, in fact, signify that Christ was the messianic king. And Christ receives the gestures on the part of the people, as well as the words, the acclamation that was spoken. He receives that as absolutely true concerning himself that he was the king promised from long ago who had come to fulfill prophecy to save his people. You see, Christ did not tell the people to cease and desist from proclaiming him king, but he acknowledged it by receiving the truth that was behind those particular gestures. 
even though the people themselves, by and large, completely misunderstood the nature of Christ's kingdom. For this royal honor which they had poured out upon Christ, declaring him to be the king, these same people in a few short days would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. How could such kingly glory and acclamation toward Christ be so quickly turned into curses and threats? The multitudes, like the disciples themselves, had misunderstood the nature of Christ's kingdom. Although Christ received the royal honor of a king, nevertheless, he declared by his actions that he was not the kind of king that they imagined. For he did not come riding upon a white steed, which was common to the conquerors of that day. In fact, if you turn to Revelation 19.11, there you will see when Christ comes in his, his estate of exaltation, he is riding upon a white horse, no longer upon a young donkey. But in his estate of humiliation, he comes riding upon a lowly donkey. And not only a lowly donkey, but even a borrowed donkey at that. Didn't even have one of his own. You see, he was signifying that his king, coming as king was at first in humiliation. That is, it would be through his suffering and through his death that he would conquer his enemies. It would be through his suffering and his death that he would overcome the devil. That he would overcome the guilt and the condemnation of sin. That he would overcome death. That he would overcome the inordinate affections that we have for the world. That he would overcome the sinful desires of our flesh. It would be not through military might but it would be through laying down his life and suffering for us that he would overcome his enemies. In his estate of humiliation, Christ did not come to crush the powerful Romans as the multitudes envisioned. You see, Christ told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. That is, Christ's throne and dominion did not originate in this world. Christ does not, like kings of this world, receive an earthly mandate or authority to rule. He has received a heavenly mandate and authority to rule. Although Christ's kingdom does indeed invade this world, Christ's kingdom comes into this world, and Christ's kingdom does capture by grace those who are bound by Satan. His kingdom, dear ones, is not subject to the kingdoms of this world or to the laws of this world. Therefore, we are wholeheartedly opposed to any encroachment on the part of a civil government into the independence of the church of Jesus Christ in being ruled solely by Jesus Christ and his divine authority. We, as a spiritual kingdom, as the church of Jesus Christ, have a king, not a political king over the church, but a spiritual king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I dare say, dear ones, that the response of the multitudes who one day were exalting him as king, but a few days later were calling him a traitor, is also manifested to varying degrees in the church of Jesus Christ as well. 
For as long as popular, a popular brand of Christianity is manufactured and placed before the eyes of people, people will follow very enthusiastically in such a parade. They'll let their support be known for, for Christ and for Christianity. As long as he is a Christ that they can embrace and fits in with their particular thinking. But, when Jesus Christ is declared to be the judge of men, not only the Savior of men, but the judge of men, when Jesus Christ is declared to be the Lord of the Sabbath, when Jesus Christ is declared to be the alone object of our faith, when Jesus Christ is declared to be the hater of all false doctrine and corrupt worship, when Jesus Christ is declared to be the only lawgiver of the church, when Jesus Christ is declared to be not only the glorified King, but the suffering servant, who calls all of His disciples to suffer persecution with Him, then there are not so many who enthusiastically follow in this parade, declaring the glory of Jesus Christ. The multitudes in Scotland flocked by thousands to sign the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant in joyfully proclaiming Christ alone as King of His Church and Lord of the nation. And yet in a few short years, Scotland was bowing the knee to Baal by acknowledging Charles II to be King over the Church. And it can happen not only in Scotland, but it can happen within our own church. Jesus Christ must always be afforded that privilege, that right of being alone the king of his church. I ask dear ones, is our honor of Christ like that of the multitudes? A superficial outward honor of gesture and words is our honor to Jesus Christ merely based upon our own perception, our own flawed perception of who Jesus is? Or do we worship and honor the Lord Jesus Christ for all that He is? Not only for what He has done for us, but for who He is in all of His righteousness and justice and holiness as well as His mercy and goodness and love. <clears throat> you see, the Lord will indeed send trials and afflictions into your life and into mine, which will test our loyalty and our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. will test the quality of our faith to see whether it is Jesus Christ in all of His glory that is the object of our faith, or have we basically conceived in our own mind a celestial Santa Claus who's simply there to give us all of these gifts without any responsibility on our part to follow Him, to obey Him, to suffer with Him to even give our lives up for Him. Will we be driven by the multitudes, dear ones, like this crowd was to do evil? Or will we show our honor for Christ by our willingness to walk even contrary to the multitudes, to that which is contrary to man today? You see, true honor to Christ is not simply there when the crowds are there. True honor to Christ is there if you are the only one standing there and proclaiming the glory of Christ. The third and final point is that Christ demonstrated 
He was the Messianic king by the fulfillment of prophecy. In Mark chapter 11, verses 9 through 11, we read, And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Here I would simply emphasize, dear ones, that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies made concerning him as he rode that day into Jerusalem upon that young borrowed donkey. In Matthew chapter 21, the parallel account in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, we read, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. That's a prophecy taken from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Furthermore, in Mark chapter where the crowds cry out, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is taken from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 27, where we read these words. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which hath shown us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. So you see, even in the the prophecy that is spoken of here in Psalm 118, There is the prediction of the triumphal entry of Christ followed by the binding of the sacrifice with cords even into the horns of the altar, which refers to the death of our Savior. The crowds fulfill prophecy. Whether they realized or not that they were actually fulfilling prophecy, they were in fact doing so in accordance with the will of God. <clears throat> the God who cannot lie, according to Titus 1-2, is ever faithful to his word. Just as he spoke through his prophets in the Old Testament concerning so many details about the life of Jesus Christ, and every one of them was fulfilled as it pertained to his first coming. So, dear ones, we have all confidence to believe and to hope in the, in the truth that he will fulfill all prophecies that are yet to occur, that have been prophesied in the scriptures, concerning the destruction of Antichrist and all false religion, concerning the restoration of Israel as a nation unto himself, concerning the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the nations of the world, that will be brought to Jesus Christ concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ, concerning the the resurrection of the dead, concerning the final judgment, concerning the new heavens and the new earth, all of these particular events which have been prophesied will be fulfilled just as all the events of Christ's first coming were fulfilled. In fact, our faith is greatly strengthened as we read the Word of God and see how God did fulfill those particular prophecies. Dear ones, Christ continues to demonstrate that He is King 
in the fulfillment of these prophecies. Just as those prophecies, dear ones, fell out, so are prophecies now falling out. As we read through the book of Revelation, we can see how God has prophesied so many events, not even future to us, but it have even happened in church history. And the Lord has fulfilled these particular events even as He promised. How can we doubt that He will fail to fulfill what He will yet bring about? All of these things will happen. All of these things are certain to happen. And because they are certain to happen, how then should we live now in light of those things which are to come? Should we grow weary in well-doing? Should we become drunken, as it were? Should we fall asleep on the job? Or should we live in expectation of those prophecies being fulfilled? Should they be in our minds continuously? Should we be bringing them up before the Lord, focusing our faith upon these things that are yet to occur? You see, this is a demonstration that Jesus Christ indeed is King as He fulfills all of these prophecies. One of the prophecies that brings such hope in the midst of tribulation, affliction, sorrow, grief, disappointment, despair, besetting sins in our lives is to continue to cast our eyes upon the coming of Christ. The Lord pronounces a blessing upon those who love His appearing, who earnestly expect and anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we live in anticipation of the coming of Christ? Do we allow the glory of that particular event to become so real to our faith that it actually has the effect of lifting us up out of the dire circumstances in which we live to be able to, to, to be able to live in confidence and joy in the Lord, in spite of all of these things. And just as the Lord demonstrates that He is the King in fulfilling these prophecies, I would leave you with this thought, dear ones. He also demonstrates that He is the King, not only by way of prophecies, but by way of His promises. His promises which He makes to His people Promises for any and every circumstance that you find yourself in. There are promises of God. If He will keep the prophecies which have been made concerning Him, how can He fail to keep the promises that He has made to you, His people? He cannot. He cannot lie, dear ones. He will fulfill in truth all of those promises. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is a very familiar promise, but one which, dear people of God, we need to continually resort to. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. The Lord will cause all things in your life and in mine, regardless of what it is, if you are or one who has been called, effectually called by God into communion, union and communion with Christ, the Lord will use everything in your life for good. You will be able, like Joseph, who in Genesis chapter 50 said to his brethren who had betrayed him, who have so had sought to kill him, who had sold him into slavery, You'll be able to say, regardless of what has happened in your life, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Because God is ever faithful. Jesus Christ is ever faithful to his promises. Faith, dear ones, remember, is entrusting yourself to the God who is able and who is faithful to keep his promises. 
what should always be on our lips, what should always be a part of our profession is, Christ cannot do me wrong. Christ cannot. It is impossible for Christ to do me wrong. Do you believe that today? Regardless of what you're going through, Christ, the King, cannot do you wrong. We may have to, like the father whose child was possessed, whose son was possessed with the demon that we spoke of earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we may have to be praying to the Lord while we watch that child thrust about by the enemy, cast into the water, cast into the fire. And we may cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me. We may even cry out, Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. Even in such circumstances, Christ cannot do me wrong. If that is our confidence and if that is our hope, then the Lord will grant us the grace to persevere. The Lord will grant us a joy unspeakable and full of glory, knowing that all things work together for good to those who love Him and to those who are called according to His purpose. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we do thank Thee this day that Thou hast declared unto us again the glories of our Savior. We have focused, O Lord, upon the kingly authority of our Savior. We praise Thee, our Father, that that Thou hast shown us this day our need of Christ to subdue us unto Himself. We thank Thee, Lord, that it has been demonstrated that Jesus Christ rules over all of His enemies. We thank Thee, O Lord, our God, that Thou hast shown to us the way of faith in submitting ourselves to the Lord and His royal authority. Father, forgive us of our sin of unbelief, of worry. Forgive us, Lord, for doubting Thy promises for questioning thy justice and thy fairness in thy ways with us. Forgive us, Lord, for not kissing the rod, but rather grumbling against the afflictions in our life. For Christ can do us no wrong. O Lord, we pray that thou would cause us to look to Christ this day as our only hope of eternal salvation. Cause us to look to Christ is our righteousness, our joy, our peace, our contentment. Cause us to look to Christ as our life. O oh Lord, we pray Thou would seal these truths unto our hearts, that we would not soon forget them, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, 
Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.